Welcome to the Holistic Wealth and Health Podcast. Your co-hosts, Jason Smith and Brian Bibbo, will inspire and teach you how to prosper in your mind, body, and spirit, not just your financial life. Joining forces with field experts, Jason and Brian are here to help you focus on what matters most in your life, living well. Let's get started. Estate planning. It's not just for the wealthy, it's for you. In this episode of the Holistic Wealth and Health Podcast, you will learn just how important it is to plan for your future. Your host, Brian Bibbo of the J.L. Smith Group, explores the importance of estate planning with Russ McLaughlin of O'Toole, McLaughlin, Dooley, and Pecora. Russ has been practicing law since 1974. He also has a degree in business administration. I'm Patrice Sikora. Russ is experienced in trusts, wills, and transfers, with a focus on probate avoidance and tax minimization. So Brian, Russ, many people may not think the phrase estate planning applies to them, but how is that incorrect? Yeah, great question, Patrice. I'm excited to have a colleague on here, Russ. And, and really, we're going to break down estate planning and, and a, lot of, a lot of the people we run across in the JL Smith group and, and people out there always ask a question hey, what's estate planning? Why should I be worried about it? So Russ, why don't we just tune it over to you? What is estate planning and and why is it important? Well, first of all, thank you, Patrice. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Brian, as far as uh, estates and probate, they mean a little bit different things if we're talking in a technical sense or in a general sense. I'm going to just refer to estate planning today as the process of making sure that what you've accumulated over a lifetime gets where you want it in the event of your death as quickly, easily, inexpensively as possible and tax-free as possible. So those are the general objectives that most people have when they inquire about estate planning, Brian. That's great, Russ. So what I'm really hearing is when God calls our time, it's to plan for all the things we've accumulated over the years to to pass on properly. So, you know, what would you say in your your experience would be the benefits to doing this? Why would someone want to prepare ahead of time, maybe years in advance? I mean, an example is like me, Russ. I had you uh, create a trust for myself, my wife, and my children. But for everyone else out there, what would you say the benefits are? Well, Brian, I hate to be on the negative side of things, but I could go on for an endless amount of time after 46 years telling you all of the horrible things that can happen if you don't plan. I don't want to go there, but I I would say this, not having your estate planning in order can create a lot of headaches for your heirs. Now, as between a husband and wife, sometimes if that's all that they're focused on, we can create a non-probate estate where everything transfers from spouse to spouse just by going over what uh, local law allows and what your contracts allow. What I mean by contracts is things like beneficiary designations on your IRA, your 401k, your life insurance, your bank accounts, making them joint or payable on death. Same thing with real estate. Virtually every state has a form of survivorship ownership between husband and wife. But in the event that the second spouse passes, that's where this gets very serious. And by doing adequate estate planning, most of the time we can create a 
probate avoidance at two levels, not just husband to wife, wife to husband, partner to partner, but also for the uh, benefit of the heirs, the next generation. Hey, Russ, this is Patrice. Got a quick question for you here. You mentioned beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. How important is it to make sure that your beneficiaries match on each different document? (laughs) That's a good one, Patrice. I will say this. uh, Every estate plan is like a snowflake. You know, they look a little bit alike, but they're all different. Sometimes we go out of our way to go through each and every probate and non-probate asset with our clients to make sure that everything either matches or that it doesn't match for a reason. There are occasions where certain parents have provided so much assistance to one particular child that they feel that it's better to balance things out for another child with life insurance or with a retirement benefit. So this is what makes it very interesting is that each plan may contain similar documents from our toolkit, but making it work is something that needs to be uh, customized and also reviewed every so many years. Russ, let's break down that toolbox you talked about. And I got the million dollar question here that I always get. I always get this question. Should I get a will or should I get a trust? And I know the answer depends, but could you give us some context to each one of those documents? Sure, Brian. No problem. Now, the toolkit that I'm referring to very generally and working without a net here, but we always always have a discussion that involves all of these things. And then we start talking later on in our meetings as to which will be the best fit. But the core kernel of many estate plans is the revocable living trust. Then in most cases, we also will have a will, whether we have a trust or not. And I'll explain in a little bit. Then we'll have a general durable power of attorney. Then quite often we will have in Ohio, it's called a living will or a health care power of attorney. In many states, it's referred to as advanced directives, but it's essentially the same, the same thing where people are saying in the event that I am in a terminal condition or a permanently unconscious state, I don't want to be kept alive by artificial means or heroic measures. And then in addition to that, we often use transfer on death arrangements. Now, your question was was really a good one, and I'm sure it's it's on the mind of a lot of uh, listeners. When we have a simple, and I mean the simple situation, let's say we've got a husband, a wife, and one child. Boom. Now, Husband to wife arrangements in every state can be created so that there is no probate without the need for a revocable living trust. How does that work? Well, we create a survivorship form of ownership on the house if it's not done already. Make sure that we've got our bank accounts in a joint fashion. Make sure that our beneficiary designations are all up to date so that the spouse is the first beneficiary and the one child is the second beneficiary, that type of thing. So quite often, a little simple plan involving a will, a general durable power of attorney, I didn't cover that at all yet, I'd better, uh, and a few other beneficiary designations will work. That's not the case. Matter of fact, it's not the case most of the time for me. We'll have multiple children, 
some in different states. Blended families, that's my favorite. We have a lot of that where uh, we have a, uh, a plan that is intended to uh, be fair to both his and hers and sometimes theirs. We, we just try to make it so that it all fits together, but each one of these tools might, might be used in a slightly different way. As you know, Russ, I have a, a wife, been together since we were 17 years of age, and, and two younger children. And what I hired you to do was to create a, a trust uh, for my children, essentially. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? You know, the younger children, my big concern was, hey, I don't want a family member to inherit my life insurance, my 401k. I wanted to make sure this stuff went into trust. So in that example, could you just give us a little bit more there? I'll be more than happy to, Brian. And Patrice, that is an attorney-client privilege waiver, okay? <laughs> <laughs> got it. No problem. All right. Brian, what we've got is a situation which is so typical. When I've got uh, a young person, a young couple, and they have young children, very often they don't feel that they can possibly just get away with a simple will. And really, they shouldn't in most cases, because you can make sure that, that your wife inherits everything from you. But if both of you were gone, what you've, inher what you've accumulated up to this point and into the future is going to have to go down to your children, but you can't just hand it to a young child. So what you do through your revocable living trust is you've created a situation where you have a, a battery of successor trustees. First, it's you then your wife, then it goes to your next most trusted person, and then you'll have one or two more. And those people that you've uh, uh, invested your, your trust in will make sure that they take whatever you have accumulated, liquidate, transfer, sell, whatever they need to do to simplify your estate, and then put it into safe they call it the prudent man rules goes back a long way. Sorry, Patrice. But anyway, these these rules govern what investments can be made by a fiduciary and the fiduciary generic term for trustee, guardian, executor, th that sort of thing. Make sure that your fiduciary watches over the funds for the children. In your case, Brian, and in many cases, you also have authority that you give to your trustee to make distributions to the children for the magic words are health, education, maintenance, and support. The lawyers, the accountants, the financial planners refer to that as the HEMS test. Everybody in the business knows what that means. The tax code knows what that means. So distributions can be made for the children's benefit at the discretion of the trustee. That's why the trustee's choice is so so important. And then at some point, as it is in your trust, when your children have reached what you determine to be an acceptable age, the trustee will make a full distribution of the estate for the benefit of the children. Usually in my practice, people want to have a date at least into their 20s, maybe 25, when there's likely to be through with all of their formal education and have uh, eh, experienced a little bit of life. Russ, can a will or a trust impact taxes? You mentioned the tax code. The tax code is, at this point in time, is not as critical as it was. Over my lifetime in the law, I've had a situation, uh, had the situation where almost all of my clients had to worry about federal 
estate taxes. So in that, in those cases, we would create a trust which would divide the estate in such a way that it wouldn't all go to the surviving spouse on the death of the first spouse. That type of trust was called a credit shelter trust. What it means is that if you split the estate up just through paperwork, but you split the estate up on the death of the first spouse, first of all, setting up this B or bypass or family trust, whatever you want to call it, for the benefit of the children, when the second spouse would pass, I always try to say he's passed away, the spouse, the surviving spouse is the wife, she passes later, her share drops down to her children under the amount of the federal estate tax, and the trust, whatever's left of it, passes to the children under the amount that was set for federal estate tax. Well, now, I, in my practice, don't have too many clients who have to worry about it. You can, just for sake of argument, between 22 and $23 million for a, a couple, that is not my sweet spot in my practice. So the tax code isn't as big of a consideration right now, but we're recording this in early 2021, and we don't know what the tax code might say in the future. So we could end up in a situation someday where we have to, where I have to worry more about federal estate taxes for my clients, but it's always a consideration. Ross, you brought up some great documents before, like a durable power of an, and a healthcare power of attorney. My grandma and grandpa went to the nursing home and my mom was the durable power of attorney and also the healthcare power of attorney over both of them. What did that allow my mom to be able to do on their behalf? First of all, the general, and, and we I have to apologize, but these are the terms that I inherited. We have wills, we have living wills. We have powers of attorney, we have healthcare powers of attorney. Let me focus strictly on the general durable power of attorney. For our purposes, that is a financial power of attorney. What the financial power of attorney will do is allow someone to pinch hit for you if you cannot do certain things that involve financial transactions. It can include the filing of taxes. Our general durable power of attorney is growing and growing and growing. Every year I add something to it. What I have in there, we've got tax powers, we've got the power to invest in, sell, manage real estate. If there is a business that our disabled temporarily or permanently disabled person is involved in, the POA or the attorney, in fact, can continue to conduct business transactions. Gifting, continuing to make gifts, you can put in certain rules as to how you would like gifting to be handled, or you can simply say that I want to carry out the pattern of gifting that I've established through my lifetime. Uh, hiring home health care workers, just, just conducting numerous activities. I was lucky enough that my mom lived to 102. And sometime in her late 90s, one day she just said, that's it. I've had it. You can take care of my bills. You've offered to. So we went to two different banks. I showed them the general durable power of attorney. And from that point on, I simply took care of mom's bills. That's the general purpose for it, uh, Brian. Now, the, uh, the living will and the healthcare power of attorney is very state specific, but in general, and I'm going to speak to Ohio because that's where I am, the living will 
contains very simple language that says, if I am in a terminal condition, and there are definitions for that, if I am in a permanently unconscious state, and there's definitions for that, then I want you to stop with the CPR if you've started it, sign the DNR, do not resuscitate order at the hospital or the nursing facility, wherever I am, and let me go. Don't keep me alive by artificial means or heroic measures. In some states, uh, I see mostly Ohio, Texas, and Florida documents in my practice, but in most states, there's similar language throughout where it's asked now, if you're in a coma, are you giving authority to your agent to order that they terminate nutrition and hydration? In other words, the pull the plug clause. We have that in, in Ohio, a specific line where that particular paragraph is initialed. And if so, you're not directing anybody to do that, but you're telling them that that's an option. If the hospital, if the doctors, if your consultants say that there is no hope, you're giving your loved ones the opportunity to follow those recommendations and actually terminate nutrition and hydration. I mentioned the two definitions of terminal condition and permanently unconscious state. And again, in the living will that, that we do requires the opinion of two physicians. It'll say my physician and one other physician, in other words, a consultant, to come to the same conclusion. Does it work that way in reality? Generally not. Generally not. Everybody seems to know what to do. The general practice is that I've learned from feedback from many, many clients over the years is that uh, it's not that formal in most cases. The family is all there. They don't make these decisions in a vacuum. They speak with the medical staff together, and the decision is just made. But all of this formality is in place in case of a family controversy, in case of some type of disagreement. It's best to have these thoughts down, and it's best for the parent to speak with the children about their wishes uh, in advance, if at all possible, Brian. Your mom were, you know, she kind of turned over the bills to you in her 90s and said, hey, Russ, handle these. And the, and the durable power of attorney, from my, what I heard, uh, allowed you to do so. But in your practice over the last 46 years, you know, there's these things with the joint ownership, hey, between a husband and wife, it goes to the surviving spouse. But what about the next in line for our listeners out there? You know, whether it's passing on to the, the next level beneficiaries, children, or anything else like that, is there any tips or tricks on these uh, payable on death or transfer on death, those things I've heard about before? Yes, thank you, Brian. That's a good point. Uh, every now and then, uh, somebody will tap me on the shoulder and ask me if I'll I'll tag along and give a an estate planning presentation. One of them that that I was at was uh, a colleague, and he was telling the crowd about a transfer on death arrangement, where even though the husband and the wife have a survivorship deed in Ohio, at least we can create a transfer on death designation where we say, okay, now if the spouse isn't there anymore, then it goes to this person or to these people. I heard him say, yeah, my mom's got it set up for us. There's four of us. We're all going to receive the property TOD. Well, in my personal experience dealing with human beings, I think that that's not a, not a great idea. It's just, first of all, it's got to be clear that unlike an arrangement where the property 
to sins through the family, through a revocable living trust, that type of TOD arrangement, there's no one in charge. No one in charge is not necessarily a good thing. So in the case that, that my colleague was talking about, I've got four separate children. Let's say they're all married. That's eight people who would have to join in signing a deed to sell the property uh, to a buyer. That's eight different people who would have to decide who is the, uh, should we hire a realtor? If so, who is the realtor going to be? Should we fix up the house before? Should we spend money on it before we put it on the market? What's a good asking price? What's a good selling price? What are the terms of this agreement? I, I would hope that I'm making my point. If you have a trustee of a trust, you have a non-probate court, non-supervised type of situation where you've got one person who was deemed by the parents to be the best choice, usually a parent, might not be, dear friend, somebody with a good head on their shoulders that could work with a lawyer, could work with a financial planner, could work with a surveyor, an appraiser, an accountant, any anybody that might be necessary to settle the estate. I don't mean to be negative about transfer on death designations. They're wonderful. In that case that I mentioned before, husband and wife with a surviving uh, with a survivorship deed, and then a TOD deed to their only daughter who lives nearby. That's great. But when you start getting two, three, four, five siblings plus spouses involved, I usually start recommending a trust arrangement because that eliminates that headache of having no one in charge and potential chaos. That's awesome, Russ. And, and that's great feedback. And I want to ask you one last question before we wrap it up here. With your 46 years of experience, what do you think is the item that is not properly titled and ends up going to probate court. Uh, you know, I hear the bank account, I hear vehicles, I hear homes. What would you say over the last 46 years you've ran into of the number one that hasn't been properly titled? Oh my, oh my. Well, we are running into very few homes anymore. Almost everyone it seems, has been to a seminar at some time during their lifetime or their children have, and they've asked mom or dad, hey, what happens to the house in the event you pass? That does, that does happen. But we have a lot of loose ends, Brian. Probate estates can be created by somebody just simply leaving one, two, or a whole yard full of cars and trucks. That can create a, an estate. And the worst part is it may not be cost effective to even have a probate for some of these assets that are left behind. Other things that have created probate for us are the fact in that there aren't that many anymore, but there used to be in my practice, employee stock option plans, ESOPs. Those would never create a stock payable to, I'm sorry, in the name of both the husband and the wife. If the husband had the job at the company that issued stock to him, it's in his name. Oh my God. Did he pay attention to it? No, he just let it pile up for 30 years and then retired. That can be a probate asset. People are reluctant to change the title on savings bonds when they're still earning interest. I run into that. I've got that in my practice right now. I'm trying to convince somebody to simplify the estate by perhaps cashing in the bonds. But of course, we're making a good interest rate today. Another thing that pops up is unclaimed funds. 
I had to open two estates, one for dad, because it was his money, and then another one for mom, because the money had to flow through to mom's estate just to take care of unclaimed funds. Fortunately, it was a substantial amount. Another thing that can create probate is the refund from my nursing home. They don't know what to do with it. It comes in from the individual, from the individual's account. That individual passes away. It might be several thousand dollars coming back in. All of these are, are tricky for us because they're not cost effective, but they still need to be handled. And if that is my top one thing, I'm sure it was completely non-responsive, Brian, but that- <laughs> <laughs> You got a lot of one things, Russ. <laughs> I, can't sing, I can't single one out and that's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> totally right. understandable. Gentlemen, Brian, Russ, both of you, how can listeners reach out to you if they want to take this conversation further? Oh, my. Brian, why don't you start out with uh, with the J.L. Smith Group first? Yeah, Russ, great tune in. We are the J.L. Smith Group, a holistic fiduciary practice that helps you tie all these things together, such as retirement planning, investment distribution, taxes, estate planning, long-term care mitigation, and healthcare planning. And then Russ is one of our great colleagues that we work with directly. And Russ, where can we reach you at? My law firm phone number is area of code 440-930-4001. And the lady that organizes my life is named Brooke, and she would be happy to uh, help me carry on the conversation with any listener, perhaps even send out a little questionnaire. So we're, we're ready to hear from anybody that might want to hear from us. All right, guys. Thank you. Russ McLaughlin of O'Toole, McLaughlin, Dooley, and Pecora, and Brian Bibbo of JL Smith Group. And to make sure you know when more episodes of Holistic Wealth and Health are ready for you, all you have to do is subscribe. And of course, make sure to share with the share button. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to the Holistic Wealth and Health Podcast. We hope we inspire you to make changes so you can live your best life. If you want to find out more about what we do, or if you want to have a Holistic Wealth and Health financial plan, please call 440-934-9181. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it widely with your friends and family. Financial planning and investment advisory services offered through Prosperity Capital Advisors PCA, an SEC-registered investment advisor. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of J.L. Smith Group or Prosperity Capital Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services providers with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.